This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Dexecure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Merritt Bear and Megan O'Neill about security in the cloud. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 131. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Good morning, Rebecca. How are you doing? Good morning, Jeremy. I'm doing really well. I just taught a yoga class and now I'm about to have a really great conversation uh, about a topic that I'm not going to give away yet. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And it's funny because we were chatting with these guests before we started recording and they both own pugs. So apparently that's something that brings them together. I actually just brought my dog. I had to bring my dog to the vet. He has to have surgery. He has a lipoma or something like that. It's like a fatty growth that has to be removed. But I think for me, and I don't know about, I don't know if you have pets, but for me, the security of my animals and making sure that they're safe is the number one thing. You know what the number one, or the number two thing is for me though? The security of your guests. No, the security of the cloud and all of like, my cloud applications. Serverless technologies? Oh, somebody <laughs> yeah, just chimes in. Like... It's Merritt Bear. Oh, so so here's who we have for guests today. We have two amazing guests from AWS, both who are cybersecurity experts. We have the principal of AWS office of the CISO, Merritt Bear, and then we also have principal security specialist SA at AWS, working with customers every day to define their cloud policies. Megan O'Neill, thank you both for being here. Yes. M&M, the duo. M&M. Well, you, well, both M's. Uh, Megan, maybe you first and then Merritt. Uh, tell us a bit about yourselves and your pugs and then a little bit more about what you all do at AWS and what your day-to-day is when it comes to securing the cloud. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is Megan O'Neill. I'm a security specialist, SA solution architect at AWS. I've been at AWS for four years now um, and been in cybersecurity over, oh gosh, I'm going to date myself here, 15 years in security engineering, architecture, previous roles. I actually started my cloud journey as an AWS customer in 2014 for a global retailer based out of Seattle where I helped them set their cloud security strategy and implement controls. And it was so fun. It was just very organic. We actually, a few guys were working on an AWS environment. And they kept coming over to my desk and being like, hey, here's what we're thinking for our AWS VPC, you know? And so we would like whiteboard it and threat model it on the fly. And it was so fun to learn AWS. And after a couple months, I was like, hey, do you have an opening on your team? And it was just so organic. I moved, I was the first security person on the uh, Cloud Center of Excellence team. And we just kept going from there and building it out. And so I really enjoyed that. And I, I, I did that for four years before then working for a large consulting company to help other customers with cloud security across North America. So that's kind of my history. I'm uh, based out of Colorado. I'm in Golden and uh, we go up skiing all the time. I'm actually learning snowboarding right now, which is painful, but super fun. Um, I, and usually, also... I usually ski around all the snowboarders sitting in the middle of the trail. That's what That's I do. That's me. That's me. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? I can ski. Oh, I like, I like a challenge. So I know I can do this. I just can't give up. So yeah, I took a couple of snowboarding lessons last week up at Brick and Ridge. I was on vacation. It was so fun. But, but yeah. And then um, 
You know, uh, pugs. Yes, I have been a pug owner for 20 years, but my... Not the same one. No, another. <laughs> so I had a black pug. Her name was Indy. She was amazing. And then, you know, I just fell in love with the pug breed. So now I have Rosie. She's six years old. She's a fawn pug. She's quite the character. If she was in my... I, I booted her out of the office, obviously, because if we get any knocks at the doors, she, you know, she's like, ah, I protect the family. It barks a lot. But she's a character. Yeah, I, I bring her on every once in a while. It's like an internal meeting and people love Rosie. So. so you're saying that Rosie is also into security? Yes, absolutely. Yep. She'll that's tell us funny. if someone's that's... within like 20 feet from the house. Yeah, that's very fitting. <laughs> that's very fitting. So Merritt, you are also a pug owner, but you also know some things about security as well. That is true. We have these things in common. Yes. So I'm a principal in the office of the CISO at AWS. Chief Information Security Officer. So we are, as the name would imply, you know, kind of a scaling function for the CISO who now is CJ Moses and um, until recently was uh, Steve Schmidt who went up to do an umbrella role. And we uh, are doing a mix of things. So we uh, take care of the security of AWS as a shop that runs on AWS. But we talk to customers in CISO to CISO conversations and, you know, helping to establish customer relationships, and then taking the empathy from both of those, we try to inject some security um, awareness and, and kind of default behaviors into the ways that our services and, and products get delivered. Of course, we are a technology company, right? So what we deliver are goods and services. And so making sure that security is embedded and is kind of accounted for, which increasingly in cloud is is not just clean code, right? It's also right. architectural decisions. It's how we'll how will customers interact with this and, and how does this interact with other services? I came from U.S. government about four years ago, actually almost exactly four years ago. And yeah, I have worked in, in all three branches in, in government. And yes, big pug fan and also big rescue fan. Um, mine is a whatever conglomerate of puggy things. So you've been in cybersecurity. You said that you came about four years ago um, from the government, but I think you were there as well for at least four years. So you've been in cybersecurity for, I think, at least eight years, if I do my math right. <laughs> so maybe we can just start yeah. with an overview of the current security landscape. Uh, like, what do you think is the same as eight years ago? What's changed? How much more sophisticators have attackers become? Where do you usually start to level set the field around what security is today and where it's come from? Yeah, I actually, so I was the same year as Mark Zuckerberg and undergrad at Harvard. Um, I made the cardinal mistake of graduating, very unhip these days. <laughs> but it was very evident to me that like these questions around how we want to live were going to be important. And especially the relationship between, you know, companies, governments and, and citizen consumers. And that security was one of these ways that we define those perimeters, right? And, you know, literally and metaphorically. And so I've been in for in security world for, you know, eons. But I think that uh, the reason that I care is that there are high stakes around how we construct those relationships, which are really intimate and increasingly intimate. So, you know, to kind of lead into your second part there about, you know, what the, the threat landscape looks like now, of course, we could talk about like what current uh, amplification attacks are taking shape or what. But like, I think ultimately what I see is that there's a lot of luxury in the way that we interact with threats today versus the kind of like server babysitting we had to do 15 years ago. And the cloud is a big part of that. So 
there is, of course, there are always risks. I mean, like any technology, it's human-made. And I mean, I could easily say man-made because there is a lot of that too, right? But as a, you know, which I say deliberately as in there are going to be imperfections, there are going to be corners not seen and things that, you know, that's sort of like the the beauty and the project of working in tech and in security is the knowledge that like there is no perfection. We are in this process-driven journey. But at the same time, I think that the kinds of things we see in security today, if you are in a digital transformation, which I hope folks are, you know, as we increasingly believe that folks are moving to the cloud, it's a matter of if or of when, not if, but that folks are interacting with their kind of threat modeling in a way that is increasingly codified. So you're able to do infrastructure as code. And by that, I mean, you know, CloudFormation templates or Terraform or what have you that then allow you to embrace this kind of ephemerality and immutability that then allow you to do seamless backups and do auto remediations and that then allow you to reason about what you have constructed. And so you are doing security as code because you are doing infrastructure as code. And those are things that like, I mean, even just the ability to have really tactical and uh, knowledgeable uh, insights around your uh, around your formations like that, that at one point required you to go around and do manual checks everywhere. And now you can reason about those. And there are tools for that, too. We have an automated reasoning group, for example, that uses formal methods. But it's just that's just one example of the ways in which I think as we look at security from a landscape perspective, we get a lot of luxuries now to be working in those higher layers of the stack and to be doing, you know, infrastructure and therefore security as code. Yeah. And, and Megan, you know, you said you didn't want to date yourself, but I was um, reading like ethical hacking books back in like 1997. So a long time ago. And I, I for the longest time, maintained my own co-location facility where I had servers and I was doing all of that stuff. And it was horrible and I hated it, but it was also a good learning experience, especially the number of times that we did have uh, attacks that we we had to mitigate at some point. But um, I'm just curious because I think, you know, Merritt, you mentioned some really interesting things there about the the ephemerality of it, but also there's this whole thing about the elasticity of the cloud, right? And so now if something gets compromised, it's not taking down somebody's Linux server in a, you know, in a, a co-location uh, facility somewhere. It's potentially being able to launch thousands and thousands of instances across, I don't know, 25 regions or whatever AWS has now or whatever other uh, cloud vendor you're using. So I'm just curious that the the amount of or that attack vector, I guess the the scale of it, like where where have you seen from, you know, 15 years ago when you first started sort of where you are now, like the the threat of that scale, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's funny, too, because when you said, you know, back in the day, having, you know, figuring out attacks or like seeing those attacks within like a COLA facility, you know, I remember I used to manage firewalls for a a, a large company and we would literally if there was like a ddos attack just all the cpus on the firewalls would go up to like 97 percent, and we would literally cross our fingers like <laughs> please don't go down <laughs> and and today it's like it's it's much different right if you're seeing like a ddos attack on a system in the cloud for example and you maybe don't have ddos protections there what does that look like of course ddos protections are available so i would always recommend that customers have that in place but actually spinning things up, you know, it's, it's, it can, you know, if you have an unmonitored region, for example, and you, you know, for example, you don't have your threat detections enabled, so you're not seeing uh, unusual behavior, 
you know, they'll maybe find the biggest instances that will run Bitcoin mining, for example. But that's like right. worst case scenario. Obviously, we don't we don't want to see customers experience anything like that. And we have many services that help them to prevent those types of attacks. And actually, a lot of this education and like what types of policies you can put in place to only allow specific regions to operate. So, you know, yeah. developers can't accidentally pop in a different region in the console and start building and then be like, oh, I shouldn't be in that region or no one can do that, right? So it's almost like setting up those guardrails to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Yeah, I think, so Meg alluded to a couple of services that are probably worth saying out loud. One is AWS Shield, which can um, protect and absorb uh, DDoS attacks with what feels like limitless uh, flexibility. And then the other is Guard Duty, which has crypto mining indicators. So, like, if you haven't turned on Guard Duty, do it. Folks frequently ask me for Amazon's like custom threat intel, and the answer is, you have it. It's in Guard Duty. You right. know, you're consuming it today. Hopefully, you know, like it doesn't make any sense from a financial perspective to be Bitcoin mining in AWS unless you're having someone else foot the bill. So, you know, make sure that you are putting actions on those guard duty findings. And, and you know, as Meg alludes to, like, you know, that regional flexibility is is a huge enabler for businesses. This isn't, I always have a little bit of, and I'm not poking at you specifically, Jeremy, but I have like a, a, a pet peeve around people taking what are technologies that matter a lot for, you know, availability, which by the way, is one of the CIA triad and saying, but isn't this a security compromise? Like, yeah, did you want to do business? I mean, right. sure, there are ways that can be weaponized, but like, let's look at how we minimize that risk. And meanwhile, appreciate that it actually gives us a lot of flexibility to get stuff done. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I, I'm not suggesting, I mean, the, the, the whole point of uh, infinite scalability or close to it is the magic of the cloud, right? So of course, there are going to be bad actors that take advantage of it. But I, the other thing I maybe didn't mention was like, uh, is it control tower and you can do the SCPs, the service control policy. So you can just yep. basically say, you can't spin up anything in this particular region or something like that, which I think yeah. is, uh, is super like helpful the as well. Control tower helps you establish your footprint, essentially. But AWS organizations, I think, is what you're thinking of, where you right. can okay. um, have SCPs that you delegate down and increasingly actually not necessarily down, but flat. Uh, you can uh, delegate uh, thou shalt, thou shalt nots around. So, for example, you know, open resources or whatever. And you can, of course, always use tagging and um, ABAC, uh, what is it? Attribute-based attribute access control, control yeah. via tagging to enforce those and to codify them, right? Because what we're really talking about are things written in whatever, JSON or other kinds of uh, codification languages that say, I don't, I want to see if someone needs to do this, they need to ask me for an exception. And there's kind of this healthy friction and then unhealthy friction between dev teams and security teams, right? And I think healthy right. friction is like, tell me why you need it, because I don't think it should be available to everyone. Or I'm seeing that this team is bumping up against this guardrail all the time. Maybe our guardrails are out of whack. You know, our security metrics point to this being a pain point. And unhealthy friction is just the security team being like, we don't like it. It makes our life a little right. harder and we don't care that your business goals are different, right? So I think there's, you know, I think healthy friction is always intended to be there. So I wish, we usually don't play the videos, but I almost feel like we have to because I wish listeners could have seen when both Megan and Merritt, you said the same, what was that attribute? You said it at the same the time. Control. Yeah. 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 You both looked at each other <laughs> through this digital camera and then you both nodded at the same time. Like, I got you. 
<laughs> so let's talk about making choices around services and resources. And this is also making choices around job functions and role focuses. And I think it gets to that idea around uh, friction or where it exists and doesn't. And sometimes like, you know, developing the code and securing the code is like one person's job and maybe it just should not be. And before we get there, there's a quote, Merit, that you are well known for saying, if it's not someone's job, then it's a hope and hope is not a plan. And I have to say, I had not heard this quote before around hope not being a plan until two days ago in our VP of product at the company I work at, Common Room, had essentially, we were talking about, you know, releasing a feature and she was like, you know, and hope is not a plan. So we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And honestly, the chat went very, people were like, what a quote, that quote is lit. Wow. Like what a, <laughs> like, that's a great quote to start off the morning. Hope is not a plan. So it's been really great to hear that twice. And I wonder now if my VP of product has borrowed it from you. And I'm going to ask her. Wow. I, uh, <laughs> I take very little credit for it. I think it's kind of an, an Amazonianism because I have uh. also heard it from Eric Brandwine. And that's usually who I attribute it to. But it is, I think the idea is that good intentions are not enough. That, um, you know, like we believe that humans are, you know, as Anne Frank would say, inherently good at heart or something, you know, but that. That's not enough, right? That ultimately there needs to be mechanisms to get the job done and that mechanisms allow us to also scale and to be able, because we can not only be able to hand over to the next person sort of a playbook of what we've been working on, but also to allow us to automate away. Because if it's a mechanism that, so for example, our SIM system, initially every SIM gets answered by a human and then increasingly it get, gets answered by a robot. Because we realize that there are things we can automate away. And then meanwhile, we hire people who love automation, you know, security engineers who can code, which often means we hire devs to be security engineers, which means that one of their, you know, goals is to never close a trouble ticket until you've scripted a remediation if it can be scripted. You know, so it becomes this whole, one of the big questions I get is like, how do I build a culture of innovation, a culture of security, a culture of, and it's like, you Build a culture of what you repeatedly do. Culture is what you do on purpose over time. And I think, you know, if you want to do those behaviors, then you exhibit them, <laughs> you know, like, and the way to exhibit them is to create mechanisms to encourage and, and foster and, and kind of, you know, grow those. Yeah. And so I love this idea of like, you're, you're talking about how you, hiring developers who then become security engineers at times, right? They they hold both those, they wear both those hats, I guess, if you will, or they they merge into one. And I think this goes back to some recent conversations we've had with guests, like our, our last guest, Tom McLaughlin, was talking about developers doing all sorts of things uh, and like, uh, yeah, and like he was talking about, you know, dev and ops, and then you match them together and they're DevOps and they need to make a lot of choices around services and resources and then the security of their applications depends on it. And so I'm wondering what you think about what both of you, Megan and Merritt, think about, especially as you're seeing probably customers work through this in their cloud policies, how do you think about the level of power and or burden that's on developers when it comes to building apps that are performant, reliable, and secure? What are some of the safeguards they should be thinking about if there, you know, was a time when they weren't in charge of security, but now they're in charge of like app from end to end and also, how did they how do they build in all those things? So not just coding and then like throwing it over the wall and someone else is securing it. It's all those things in one. And so, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about like how you see this happening in the real world and whether or not it's the right amount of like mental air, air quote burden to put on someone or how you're seeing that play out in real life. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I definitely, I think there is a bit of a burden there, but I think there doesn't have to be. And this is where, you know, back in the day when I was a, a customer initially of AWS, as a security person, not the developer, I was like, okay, how there's one person like at this company that is now responsible for security that's on this like CCOE team. So how do I scale my knowledge? And I immediately went to, well, the you know, crawl, walk, run, I'm going to create a checklist so that developers can self-service their own security assessments. And so we can be super transparent with the requirements. So I think part of lowering the developer burden initially is just being transparent around what are the requirements that are out there that we expect as security practitioners them to get right. And then what are like building out an internal wiki of what does good look like? What does bad look like? Why is this bad? You know, because we can't assume that they all have security background. Most of them don't. And then how do you do that in cloud, right? And what, you know, for example, an AWS security group is very similar to a firewall. It's a, a stateful source destination port protocol. Many of them don't know IP addresses. So opening things up to the world, for example. So I think starting with those requirements, being transparent, and then codifying, Amir's mentioned this multiple times, is like setting those guardrails so that those accidental things. They're not like meaning to open things up or meaning to make public resources. It's usually by accident. So like, let's enable our environment as security practitioners so that that cannot happen. For the most part, some of the high risk things can't happen with things like service control policies, you know, not allowing those type of, of changes within the environment in AWS. And then what I would love to see more development teams do is create a library of common security patterns. For example, authentication authorization for, you know, serverless, for example, Lambda authorizers, that sort of thing that have been approved and reviewed by the security team where it's possible and that are known good practices that, so they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time and just continue to build out those libraries and code in literally in a code repository so that, you know, other folks maybe juniors or folks that are new to cloud have some things so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think the more we continue to build that type of developer experience out so that the easy thing is the right thing to do, it is going to make, you know, everyone's job easier and less security issues, you know, in the future. Exactly. I think we sometimes use the phrase like making the secure thing to do the easy thing to do, which is hard, you know, it turns out. But I always think, and of course, you know, never like this is no victim blaming, but every time that an entity says like, oh, well, an intern did that. It's like, why would the intern have privileges? That's on you. You know, there needs to be leadership. There needs to be guardrails. There needs to be paved roads. You know, there should be. It's not to say that you won't have a bad day. We all have bad days and we have mechanisms to look at what happened and whether it was a known risk, an unknown and accepted risk and unaccepted and get better over time, right? You solve problems, you know, one one piece at a time. But I do think that, you know, something Meg's getting at here is this like need for leadership in terms of, I think sometimes we see folks kind of shy away from the technical mechanisms that are very available to them to enforce their, you know, literal dicta. Like if you believe in math, code will run. And so there is this beauty in the ability to, you know, delegate those down. And meanwhile, I think, you know, Rebecca, you mentioned, you know, hiring devs to be security people, which I think is a brilliant practice. And frankly, like, who are security people? There are people who like to do security, like, 
let's it's time to embrace a very broad view of what a security person is, looks like, comes from, you know, does, because we are all, you know, we are all security people. But I also think that, you know, there's a deliberate delegating down and democratization that we employ, for example, in our, um, you know, I always, the, the DevSecOps is sort of like the cybersecurity as a term where like everyone hates it and no one has a better version. But in it's our- It's like the term serverless. Serverless. Yes. And if I get one more clever person saying it's someone else's servers or someone else's <laughs> computers, the cloud, like, okay. But, you know, at the same time, there is a real, um, there is an articulation of that that manifests in the real world, right? And and it takes the form of having your dev teams deliver with security embedded in what you do. Like, and I think it is inherently wedded to this transformation of cloud because you're talking about software layers. So you're talking about folks who are architecting and, you know, as much as we think that the console is not being used, it's sort of like the perimeter, right? The, the console is let dead long live the console. You know, folks are clicking a button to spin up resources in a region in Sydney and or they are, you know, copy and pasting uh, code that they know has created fairly secure <laughs> configurations from their previous, uh, you know, Terraform stuff. And, you know, like they are they are taking advantage of the economies of scale that you get when you're working in these software layers. And I think that is a beauty. Like, yes, there are obviously inherent risks with all of that, but the risk is the convenience and vice versa. And I think that that is actually a really good way. And what we do internally is we have right now, it's like a one to eight ratio in our, you know, two pizza teams that are doing those deliverables, the dev teams. We have a security person embedded in there. And what we have found is you don't have to hire a person who says they've been in security for 15 years like Meg and I. You just hire a, a, a or have a smart person and you say, you're going to be wearing a security hat. So every time that they try to create an internet-facing endpoint, you're going to be the one who goes, ah! or if you see a star policy, you're going to go, mm. and and you know what? Everyone can do it. Like, it is not some kind of, like, kiss, you know, the stone that, that makes you a, a security person you think through with that sort of like head and and that's how we confront this as a an area of work that will always be a pursuit yeah and it's, you mentioned um you know the need for leadership but i also think you know the need for education is huge so whether that's you know just cloud in general or you know dev cyber security whatever term that you dislike there you know it's again <laughs> totally totally understand that uh, especially when people would say like anything anything with the word cyber and i never really like that hi everyone i just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor DeckSecure. DeckSecure empowers web developers by automating tasks that are essential for every website, freeing up developer time to focus on building. DeckSecure currently has three products to help your team. Their Web Asset Optimizer optimizes content like HTML, images, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, videos, and more. Their third-party optimizer takes care of all your third-party assets, and their intelligent network optimizer enhances the performance and resiliency of your website. 
Dexsecure also has an open source product called OpenDexSecure, a cloud agnostic edge development framework. Now what I love about OpenDex is that the developers can jump straight into product building and not worry about dealing with setup and all the other roadblocks that come from the complexity and configurations of other popular CDNs. If you're interested in trying Dexsecure's products, you can for free. Just visit Dexsecure's website at Dexsecure.com to sign up and learn more. That's D-E-X-E-C-U-R-E dot com. You know, so when you start thinking about people getting into this field or somebody coming from the dev, you know, a dev role into a security role or something like that, something I heard you say on another podcast somewhere was like sort of your you sort of your pet peeve for acronyms, which I am sort of the same way. I mean, we joked before when we were saying ABAC, but I think for new people coming into any type of new function or new role or something that has a little slightly different context to it, acronyms are really, really hard. <laughs> uh, we joked before, like, you know, a, a marketing person saying SQL and meaning sales qualified leads as, a, as opposed to structured query language and that becoming very confusing. But I'm just curious, and, and maybe both of you could take a, a shot at answering this, but if you are new into cybersecurity or you're, you know, you're a dev and, and you know, and you, you want to get into this sort of role, like what are the, what are the first steps? Like where's the education there? Where, where's that, where's that path for you? I'll take this one first and let Meg put the foot stomp on it since she has, as she kind of alluded to earlier, really good real life. I've always been the security person in the room and I think that one of the things that I love doing I mean, I think that one of the reasons I am a security person is that I love doing that part where I talk to smart people trying to get stuff done. And then I help kind of help shape their understanding of what I'm looking for in the world. But I think that this is where, I guess, from my perspective, there is every CISO who I talk to complains of a talent shortage. And I think they just aren't looking with the same eyes. You know, like they're super smart, interesting, qualified folks who, you know, could take advantage of resources, you know, who you could develop internally, who, you know, like, especially in cloud, even if you have a computer science degree, it's probably not going to have an AWS aspect or it, maybe today right. it does, but it definitely didn't 10 years ago. Like, I don't think it does know, anymore. Yeah, it, or right? I still don't think it does. Yeah, I think um, I think there are so many interesting folks who and I have made it deliberate in in my world to, you know, and I will will give my contact info throughout this, but I'm happy. This is also my little uh, call to arms, like, feel free to reach out to me personally. I will refer you for Amazon jobs. I will brainstorm other things in my network. If you were an artist or an architect or a first grade teacher, if you are not a, you know, typical profile of who shows up in tech, like, great, we need you. You know, just remember that the landscape of what we have constructed here is sort of like thought skeletons from people who came before, who, you know, like, and as incredible as the internet is, like, this is not like a black hole that, you know, NASA is like, this is out here, whether we know about it or not. No, we are building these and we are the ones who are, you know, constructing some of these kinds of limits or or lack thereof. Right. And I think there's a lot of sweetness in recognizing like who but we. So from a from a security hiring perspective, I think, you know, we are the water is warm and it's really critical that we have diverse and and kind of um misanthropic thinkers of all kinds um, 
who are ready to to get in and question why things are done that way while still recognizing that this is a business enabler. But I think that there is just so much room, whether you're a dev today or you want to be a dev tomorrow, uh, to, to, you know, help build yourself up. And also, you know, if you are in a leadership position now, to be able to think through avenues to upskill folks who work for you and, and hire folks who may look different or not not have gone through the rituals that you would expect before they get hired by you. Yeah. No, that's, I, I love that, Merit. I think, you know, the other thing, the other aspect of it is, you know, well, what you already mentioned is that, you know, if you're a curious person and you like, you know, you're analyzing a problem, this is, we're just analyzing problems and trying to solve these problems, right? And I think a lot of the things I've done is like, you know, I came out with a computer science degree in 2004, right? And and then I did all this other work when I was, a new problem was set in front of me and it's just like, dig in and read about it. Like PCI, what the heck is PCI? I actually opened up the payment card industry data security standard and read the whole thing front to back. And then it's like, when you actually get down to it and start talking about it, it's actually the up to the interpretation of the assessor when you're going through these on-site assessments. So you... It really, it's it's making sure that you're educating yourself and diving into some of these problems. And you just learn so much through that and through mentorship. I've had mentors my entire career, and I think that's really helped a lot, too. And it's just how do we break down these problems and try and learn more and dive deeper into them so that we have a really good understanding of them? You know, I've been working with Merit. She's been mentoring me this past year, and it's been so great just to see, you know, we do things differently. She has a different approach to things and it's really opened my eyes and helped me. And it's also empowering when you have a mentor because I feel like you have someone to talk to if you don't know how to solve a problem. And especially in COVID times, oh my gosh, we feel so isolated, right? And so when you have someone that you can, you know, do a quick fly down to Miami and <laughs> recording with and <laughs> chat about it, it, it makes the tough stuff seem that much more fun and exciting. It keeps you interested in your job and you just learn so much more. So definitely recommend getting a mentor through the process and and just don't be scared. Don't be scared of the hard stuff. Dive in, read the specs, read the GDPR spec. Like seriously, it's not as complicated as you would think. And then as you're reading these things, you're going to have questions. So you can just, you know, jump on a Slack channel with your mentor and be like, hey, how do, how do you see customers approach this problem? And, you know, the dialogue continues, right? Well, congratulations for making it through that PCI document because the first time I went through PCI compliance, I think I fell asleep like six times trying to read through I mean, it, that's but, the thing, um, right? <laughs> Reading documents Maybe I'm just boring. not as excited about it, but it's good that we have people that are excited uh, like you. <laughs> I think Meg's point is, look, these were just written by other humans who may not even yeah. be smarter than you. You know what I mean? Like, it's, and, and meanwhile, um, when, you know, I think uh, Meg and I love to work together because steel sharpens steel. Like, we were never assigned to, I was never assigned to mentor her. It was just, like, we get stronger when we learn from each other. Like, being willing to say, I would love to hear what you think about this or how you would approach this will, will help you, help a person to, you know, feel even more empowered that maybe you were onto something. And and I think, although we're, I guess, uh, doubling down on this, like there is a lot around security that feels sort of secretive or intimidating. I encourage folks to just remember, again, everyone had to learn it at some time. And also, 
you know, some of the stuff that's super fascinating, like cryptography, like the pyramids and the stars and like these are things that we have, you know, wrestled with that are worth falling in love with. You know, like there's a lot of beauty there, too. It is not just sort of unsolvable problems. It's really kind of inspiring and igniting. I was actually sort of on the other side of I, I was like, wow, you're making this sound really fun rather than than boring. It's almost that <laughs> good. It's almost that way when sometimes it, you read a book and you think maybe that book is boring. And then you have, you know, a teacher or a mentor or a friend that says like, oh, but did you read it in this way or did you notice this part? And then you're like, wow, that is really cool. And it totally opens up that it actually can be that you're reading it in a way that was boring, but it's because of the voice in your head rather than seeing it for what it is. So anyway, I, I'm kind of sold. So you said the water is warm and also hopefully the servers are warm. And with that in mind, we only have about 10 minutes. So I want to dive into a little bit about serverless itself. Um, And, you know, the initial move to cloud was followed by all this like fear, uncertainty, like FUD around security. Um, And honestly, that still exists, I think, in in a lot of ways. And, And then perhaps with each new paradigm, new security concerns are raised. And so I'm wondering how you've seen trust in the security of the cloud change over time, and then how have you, you've seen trust and security in the serverless corners of the cloud change over time since it was introduced at the end of 2014? So I think uh, one of the things that I try to do in CISO to CISO conversations is remind them of all the stuff they had to worry about before. All the things that they inherit from us or whomever their cloud provider is, but in particular, I know about AWS's practices, right? So for example, our Nitro architecture, where you've got basically like a hypervisorless hypervisor. There is no way to do things with, you know, remote code execution or side channel attacks or other that, you know, like there are beauties from a security perspective, not to mention the unprecedented uptime, the ability to do, you know, patching without any downtime. Like there are, there are things that we have invested in for years that are now just part of what you feel but don't think about, I would say, from a security perspective. And and frankly, even just inheritances that are how our platform operates. So your security services like GuardDuty and, and Security Hub and WAF that we've alluded to are obvious, you know, security inheritances in the sense that you can consume those and, and get security benefits. But even looking at something like you know, backup and restore at uh, the ability to clone databases and consider that a canary at the ability, you know, like there's so much sweetness that comes along with the ability to construct and really have your focus be architectural instead of, and I guess this will sound uh, odd, but instead of code-based, right? Like we have written the services, they go through our AppSec process, they go through all these things to then be delivered. And so, you know, you alluded earlier, Rebecca, to like, you know, folks who used to create software and throw it under, over the fence, right? That's just not true for cloud. Like what we're selling are actually the services themselves. And so there is not this like good luck. The shared responsibility model exists because we don't know what you're doing with your data because it's deliberate that we don't look at content layers. That's why KMS has no Venn me or plain text keys button. Like, that was on purpose. But at the same time, there are ways that we hope to, as Meg alluded to, you know, educate folks so that they are building security. We definitely care intimately about that. And so I think as we move into, so serverless is kind of one of those inheritances, right? Because you now are dealing with codification of what you're working on instead of having to deal with the kind of like literal mass of it. 
And we see folks embracing serverless for all sorts of things, right? For billing, uh, you know, uh, benefits, but also for availability, for remediations. You know, your Alexa is powered by a Lambda function and you can write those raw. You can grab them off GitHub. You know, there's a lot of packagedness and then a lot of accessibility around if you want to uh, tailor those for yourself. And so I think there's a lot of beauty in that. And of course, it's imperfect. All technologies are, as we have, you know, referenced. But I think there's a lot of promise as we move into this kind of, or are already moving into this kind of like, you know, software defined and software, which means codified, uh, defined kind of world. There's so much room for promise there. Yeah, I love that. And I think when I talk to customers and I've seen like the transformation happen, you know, first starting AWS four years ago, a lot of it was just customers not being educated or not knowing some of the common patterns out there that they can use. And so a lot of it's education, a lot of it's like, I think what a game changer for me personally, back when I was a customer was attending reInvent because all that is, is sharing those common patterns and just actually was really cool. Uh, you know, I went to some sessions where it was actually AWS security up on stage talking about how they do threat detection at scale which talk about scale when you're Amazon, you know, and AWS and, and they're sharing the details of implementation. They shared that they hire developers, like, you know, what we were talking about earlier, folks that were interested in security, but that could build the systems because you have to build them yourself. Uh, a lot of those commercial products don't necessarily scale to the size that, you know, we need. And, and that really helps, you know, helped me get, educate me on some of the things, how like how to think outside of the box on how to tackle some of these security problems or, you know, server lifts. Nick, was that, a, was that a box metaphor? I mean, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, good. That's good. Uh, you know, and I think the, the other thing there is like, that that's literally my job as a security specialist solutions architect is, you know, I actually, right before this, got off of a call where we talked to the CISO and it's like, hey, what are you guys working on? What are your concerns? What are you struggling with? They don't have to pay me. <laughs> Seriously, I'm a free resource to customers now. I do have to scale across, you know, uh, North America. But, you know, my job is to literally like work with customers, help them get through concerns. And some of that is education. Like, how, what are the best practices for this? Hey, we have this issue. Oh, we didn't realize this service could do this. And so... A lot of it is actually is education. And then, and I love to also see, uh, you know, customers open sourcing tools that they've built to solve some of these problems. That's just, again, creates more patterns that are available for other customers to solve these challenges as well. Awesome. All right. So we're basically out of time. I feel like we could, I mean, I honestly have maybe like 300 more questions for you, but we're going to have to just limit it to one more. And so I think just we've talked about a lot of things. We mentioned, I think we mentioned Audit Trail, WAF. We mentioned a couple of things, Lambda. Uh, you mentioned automated remediation scripts, things like that. So just quickly, what are the sort of the, maybe the top five tools or whatever, the top tools that somebody building an app, a serverless app on AWS, what are the sort of the top security tools that they should use? You know, just, just throw it out there quickly. Uh, Guard duty, Guard duty, CloudTrail, uh, Security Hub, Identity and Access Management. I'm gonna be in one of those annoying people who refuses to answer the question you asked, but answer is a different <laughs> one. I mean, step one is maybe use a managed service, right? Like just have right. us manage it for you. Step two is 
think about like they probably won't even notice all the serverless, right? Um, EventBridge is CloudWatch, uh, you know, doing lambdas under the hood. Config rules is config doing lambdas under the hood. Lambdas you can write yourself, you know, like there are all these ways that I think, basically I think the real core is one, taking advantage of managed services and being conscious of where your responsibilities lie in the stack. And two, automation, right? And that takes various forms, but it's going to ultimately be lambdas under the hood, but it'll feel seamless to you. And that's, that's the beauty of a lot of this is that you don't have to reinvent that wheel. Megan, is there anything you wanted to add? No, I, I think that's great. Well, before we release everyone back into building very secure applications and building a very secure cloud, wanted to understand where listeners can learn more about each of you, Merit and Megan. And then also, of course, we'll put these in the show notes. And Merit, if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, tech and roses and, you know, giving back to women in tech and what it is. And we'll also put that in the show notes as well. Sure. Yes, folks, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Feel free to contact me. I'm on Twitter at at Merit Bear. And uh, yes, I, you know, I worked on building what I call an expert network of women in technology, which is intentionally supposed to kind of allow us to ask hard questions around, you know, whether to take this job, whether we can upskill ourselves, how to ask for more pay, those kinds of questions for you know, senior career folks. So if you're someone who's interested, feel free to reach out to me. Um, as you can tell, it's something that I feel passionately about. And I think while really uh, strong inroads is important, we have more avenues for junior folks and fewer for senior folks to be able to talk to each other. So that was where I wanted that to, to play in. And shout out to Deborah Lathan, who um, co-founded that with me, who is a uh, a queen. So thanks so much for having us and I'm happy to share my contact info afterwards. Awesome. And Megan, you? Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. And, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that this, you know, gets other folks out there motivated to maybe dip their toes in the security pool <laughs> and join us. I'm on LinkedIn, Megan O'Neill, O apostrophe N-E-I-L. Definitely please reach out. You know, I'm here to help folks as well. And, you know, I again, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you both for being here. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. We'll see you soon. And that's this week's Serverless Chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Merritt Bear and Megan O'Neill for being our guests this week and to our sponsor, DeckSecure. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 131. For more Serverless Chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odele and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.